I'm now in my 30th year working to restore nature in forests and on farms, mostly across the north of England. 30 years ago I left the city and my old job behind. I hung up my suit and tie and went off to plant trees. It's a decision I've never regretted. I'm Pete Leeson. Welcome to Series 2 of Tree Amble Podcast. This is a podcast about people and farming and trees and nature and how we could all do much better. In this episode, I reacquaint myself with an old mate of mine, John Quinton. We were at school together, and it, it's fascinating listening to uh, two old friends. We've known each other for an awful long time, talking about our careers and uh, where we started from. He was always into rocks, I was always into trees, and we've managed to both get careers where we've done that all the way through our lives. So I hope you enjoy this one there, John. I really, I, this made me giggle every time I listened to it back. So, John, um, thanks for coming with me. We're going for a walk in a wood along the riverbank. And uh, this is one of our wee podcast series. But uh, um, so you're Professor John Quinton these days. That's true, Peter. So, yeah, I'm Professor of Soil Science at Lancaster University um, and have, have been for some time now, actually. And the funny thing is we were at school together. We were, yeah. That was uh, longer, longer than... I can kind of think. I guess it must be almost 40 years now, Peter, I that we've known each other. I think it's other, more than that. Because uh, yeah, I know how old I am. And uh, yeah. so I think it's probably 45, 46 years. Wow. There you go. Uh, that we've known each other. Yeah. And this, the, the strange thing about that is, I remember when we were at school talking about what we wanted to do. And even then, you were interested in soil. And... I was in certain yeah. trees. I, I think, yeah, I think I was, I was into rocks in, in quite a big way at that, that point, Peter. Um, I think the, the soil thing perhaps came a little bit later, but I think we both had a pretty inspirational geography teacher at that. that Frank, Frank Williams. Frank Williams, indeed. And I think he has a lot to... He had an eye. He had one of those eyes that he could look at Look at us in the classroom with one eye and look at the board with the other. Yeah, he was, uh, he was a great lover of the missing word thing, he was, wasn't he? Yeah. That was his, his, his way, but he was, he was a very enthusiastic geomorphologist and geologist, and I think that enthusiasm kind of rubbed off on me, and I think it probably rubbed off it on did, you It certainly rubbed off well. on me. Do you remember the story he told when he was um, in the Peak District and he was running down a hill? And he got to this dry stone wall and he said it was really short on his side, so he jumped over it, only to find <laughs> that the wall was three or four feet further down on the other side. Yeah. 
And it was his way of describing to us how soils move down slope. That's right, soil creep on those, creep. those, those hills. Now, whether it was soil creep or not, I don't know, maybe. See, that's the scientist in you. Yeah, I, like, I like to have the more uh, artistic vision of like that. That was definitely soil creep. Yeah, but no. Frank was the guy that brought it to our attention. That's true, that's true. Yeah, he was, he was, he was great. So from those early days in the geography classroom, where I got excited by trees, um, I remember going off a job, in, a job, what was it, a job interview, job, um, you know, careers advice. In those days, I think in our entire school career, we had about five minutes in a room with somebody. That's right. I, I, I remember that as being the advice. I mean, we, we were both from Ipswich and... Ipswich was a town full of insurance companies at <laughs> yeah, that time. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so the advice was, go get yourself a job in, in the insurance companies. Or well, that was the advice they gave to me. It certainly didn't give me the advice, maybe you should be thinking about going to university <laughs> or going and studying soils or geology. That, was, that, that wasn't part of the, well, you the were, future. You were brought up on the council estate, weren't you? That's true. Yeah. Um, older parents. Yeah. Older sisters. Right. Lots older sisters, actually. Much older. Yeah, much older. 20 years between me and my youngest sister. So, so you were yeah. really a late arrival at the ball, weren't you? Absolutely. Yes. So yeah. you were probably from that, I hate to say it in the, at this day and age, but actually what we'd call the, the, the not upwardly mobile, I suppose, or you socially mobile. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose my mum and dad were the, the war generation. My dad was was part of he fought in the war he was a prisoner of war and i think you know came back to work in a in a factory they he'd been working in a factory since the age of 14 and you know he's a bright guy my mum was a bright woman um but it, it you know difficult for them to to kind of break out of that that kind of you know i suppose that it into words, doesn't it? Um, well, they expect social expectation. Yeah, you know, what, yeah. What and other I, people thought of them and where they probably thought they themselves. Well, sat, I think maybe. I think as well. You know, they 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 had different things that they they did. I mean, my dad played cricket to a very high level. You know, minor counties cricket. Right. That sport was his life in, in many respects, and so that was the the thing that probably drove him and where he got a lot of satisfaction and. Perhaps material goods and making progress in career wasn't wasn't what he was uh, particularly interested in doing. I don't know. It's hard to it's, you know. Those are conversations I've never had with him, so I don't know. And he's unfortunately he's not here now to, well, he's not here now to, to have to, those to conversations. To answer with. some of those things, is he? Yeah. Um, which is a shame. I mean, the one thing I remember about your dad was his homebrew. <laughs> he could certainly he could certainly make a homebrew, Peter, and. Uh, you certainly drink a homebrew as well, I think. Um, yeah, I, I think his beer maybe slightly better than his wine, I think. But um, marginal, marginal calls on both of them. Head of his time, really, I suppose, getting into a micro-brewing sort of situation. Yeah, yeah well, it was pretty, I remember it being fairly powerful. <laughs> and as teenagers, that's kind of, that's what you want, isn't it? Yeah, a nice, that's pow right. powerful brew. Yeah. Yeah, and a big globe with a, with a gas bottle on the top of it and you could add a bit of fizz to the beer that came out. And my father, was, my father also used to make homebrew as well, but his was a kind of dark, thick, treacly kind of mess, really.
obviously you've you've kind of come a long way since since those days. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we we did a bit of travelling, didn't we? And, and I, we went to Iceland once didn't we, together. We, we did go to Iceland together. Yeah, that's still one of the most memorable trips I think that I ever had. I think mainly because I was so hungry most of the time. <laughs> we, we were famished. <laughs> uh, the, Everything was so expensive. Yeah, we hadn't really worked that out, had we? We hadn't worked that out. We, uh, I, we, we'd take a lot of food with us. I remember yeah. our backpacks were really super heavy. But it was all pasta, wasn't it? All pasta and cup of soup. Cup of soups. That, yeah. was, that was the whole... And muesli as well, I think we had. <laughs> Didn't we? We had muesli for breakfast. Then we, the idea was we would be able to buy something for lunch and then we yeah. would have pasta yeah. and cup of soup for dinner. And all we could buy or we could afford to buy was skewer which at that time nobody had heard of. No, that, yoghurt. That, that, that kind of yoghurty stuff was spread on a bit Because of... that was subsidised, wasn't it, for, the, for pregnant women, yeah. I think? Yeah, I think so, and bread. And bread. And, and that... boiled sweets. I think oh, we, had a l- we had a lot of boiled sweets. I, I remember playing cards. Do you remember sitting in a campsite yeah, with, with an American, American guy, guy and we played cards <laughs> for who was going to go and kill the Icelandic po- pony in the field. <laughs> to eat it. To eat it, yeah. It was, um, it was, it was, it was good times, wasn't it? I mean... A bit, a bit of salted fish, I think, was involved as well. But it was that was interesting. I mean, the whole landscape thing there—it's a landscape which you can you can see the workings of it because there's, there's, we had big yeah. ice sheets, we had glaciers we walked up to, we walked on glaciers, we spent we spent we camped next to yeah. little glacial pools where there were icebergs. Yeah, probably in places where you can't go now, I would imagine. Well, I or maybe even the glacier isn't there now well, to camp beside. Yeah. I don't know, Peter. It'd be really interesting, wouldn't it, to, to revisit some 30 or 40 years later. Well, we must have been um, 20, 21 or something when we did that. Yeah, I went, it was straight after I got my degree and basically went to the degree ceremony, changed grabbed my backpack and met you at the airport, I think. And you were at university a year longer than I was, so I was working by then, but I was working in a a job where, which I hated, but I was earning so little money in that job, I had to have a second job in the evenings. So I was washing up as well. Oh, that's that's miserable, isn't it? Living in London. Yeah, because it was working for, like, you were like a surveyor, weren't you? Yeah, but in those days, surveyors surveyors were assumed to have family income. Yeah. So, and because I came from a background not dissimilar to yours in terms of sort of financial status I suppose um, we didn't have any money so I lived I lived on this tiny wage at work and then had to go out and wash pots in the evening so by the time we landed up in the most expensive country in Europe at the time <laughs> trying to feed ourselves it was a bit of a disaster but memorable it, hugely the, memorable the other thing I remember about that trip just before we, we finished talking about it was the one of the campsites always sticks out in my mind which was in the middle of a roundabout by Reykjavik <laughs> bus station <laughs> we'd worked out we'd worked out the, the, the campsite was six kilometres outside of Reykjavik and a taxi was going to cost us about 50 quid to get to the airport. That's right. Oh, the oh. bus station. It was to get the bus, so the, it? But it was, well, the taxi fare was huge and then we had to get the bus at certain... Anyway, so we, we ended up actually pitching our tent in with the other tents... From, the, from the camp shop? From the camp shop. <laughs> because there's no crime there, so they left the, t- they left the tents up overnight. <laughs> We, we just we just sneaked on, put our tent up in, in amongst their tents, slept there the night, and then caught the bus in the morning. Yeah. I, uh, you, and you could not do some of those things now, could you? Absolutely. Well, probably not. Probably not. But perhaps you can. Perhaps we just need to get in touch with our young selves. Maybe and, we go. Uh, I mean, yeah, before we retire, we should, go and, we should go and revisit one of those tours, really. Yeah. Because um, the other tour we did was... Well, we did, we did quite a few, didn't we? But there was the other one we walked into the Lake District from Penrith. 
Yeah, um, no, that I've now I look at that walk. Yeah. And I kind of and I remember the the mass of gear I had. Yeah. So I, I didn't have any proper walking gear. I yep. had a pair of boots, and that was it, and a, and a barber jacket. Yep. Uh, that was my waterproof. I had a really thin sleeping bag, and I remember we stayed up. I think the first, so we walked from Penrith bus station all the way to Glen Ridding. Yep. And we pitched up at Glen Ridding, didn't we? And I remember being so cold. <laughs> and so exhausted. cold and, and exhausted. exhausted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it is interesting that we, we chose to be outside and we chose to do these trips in, yeah, in the uplands or in the wilds, didn't we? Yeah, well, that, we, were in, we were in Suffolk, which isn't renowned for its uh, mountains. And I guess we were, we, we were transfixed by the idea of seeing, you know, places which had experienced glaciation and yeah. where there were mountains. I'd, I'd, I'd never been to the Lake District at that age. I've, I've oh. been to the Peak District with my mum and dad, but that was, I think, as high as I'd ever been up. Well, you were, you were lucky, because my, my dad, by that stage, was very, very ill and died of a brain tumour later, but um, we, didn't, we didn't have family holidays. No. Apart from early on, I suppose, we, did, we went to Minsmere. We had a week in Minsmere every yeah. year. Yeah. Went to the bird reserve for a week, so I I learnt to do holidays on my own, you know. Yeah. And then when you came along, it's like, ah, oh, I've got this mate to play with. We can go, <laughs> we can go, we can get on the bus and go anywhere. Well, we did, didn't we? We, we even went as far as Ullapool on on the we bus. Ullapool, and you're twenty-four <laughs> hours <laughs> on a bus. <laughs> and we had two tents because you snored, and uh, oh, I never snored. <laughs> Just didn't want to get in your feet. That and, was <laughs> and then we 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 camped at the top of a glen and. And we had a ferocious wind, didn't we? And your tent blew away. Just got shredded. <laughs> and we ended up spending... And, and, my, and I ended up with this huge hole in the back of my heel. Yeah. And, uh, which, and uh, we ended up spending the week in your tiny little mm. one-man tent, didn't we? It, it was, was quite cosy. It, it was comfortable, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah very yeah. cosy. So, so our, our love of the outdoors was, was, was there all the way through. And somehow... Those early leanings towards, in your case, rocks, mine, mine trees, has led us really into where we are now, I suppose, by degrees, which is um, both working in, in some way related to the future of farming and the landscape and ecology and all that kind of stuff. And, I mean, what you're doing is, is, is phenomenal in terms of, of soils and things. I mean, you're better describing that than me, really, but you're... Yeah, you've been all the way all the way around the world talking to people about soils. Yeah, I've been really lucky, I think, Peter, in, in many ways. I've had a you know, I I got into soils perhaps a little bit by accident in the beginning, but they you know, it really interested me and I and I kind of I suppose stuck with it through times where perhaps soils weren't as as topical as they are at the moment. Um but that career, yeah, it's taken me all over the world. I've I worked in South America, Central America, uh, and uh, Southern Europe, and then more recently in in Africa as well. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's been it's been truly exciting, and I've been really fortunate. Um, but I think there is something that that links us, and that's the you know I think what we're both interested in is how we restore the environment and. You know, obviously, I see soils as a very fundamental building block in that restoration. 
they support all the vegetation that's that, that's growing in in front of us here in this this beautiful Lake District Valley. Yeah. Um, and if we don't have restored soils, we're we're going to struggle to restore both all those trees and and the water that's that's flowing past us as well. So that and and I guess your your interests are very much been around how to restore woodlands in particular, but also other other environments as well. Well, yeah. So I I mean I you yeah, known as being interested in trees, but I mean I've become much much more. I suppose much broader in my outlook now, which is obviously we've got we've got issues with um, poor health and well-being in people. We've got poor health uh, outcomes, funny enough, often in farming, which has got a very high suicide rate. There's all sorts of social issues. Um, there's environmental issues. There's climate change issues. All these kind of big things we're struggling with. And actually, you know, our, we've been lucky enough, in a sense, to be in a place where both of us can actually have a real influence on that. Um, you know, I've planted lots of trees and met loads of people and worked with loads of people on farms and things. Um, and and you, you're really, I suppose, helping to, I suppose, rediscover not just interest in, but actually how soils work and why they are so fundamental to our future. Um, and maybe we need to unpick that a wee bit. You know, what's, what's your, what is soil? What do you think soil is? Oh, gosh, that's, a, that's a, always a good question, isn't it? It's your kind of first-year yeah. exam question, yeah. isn't it? But... For me, it's, it's, I mean, I, I like the definition, it's the living skin of the earth. It, it's, it's obviously, technically, it's a mix of, of, of both biology, but also physical, chemical properties. It's, it's where all the, the biogeochemical reactions, so the, you know, where carbon gets sequestered, where nutrients get released, nitrogen and, and phosphorus for plants to, to grow. It's what absorbs water and transmits water through the, the landscape. And it also, you know, supports this wealth of life within the soil. So, you know, people talk about, you know, more biodiversity in a crumb of soil than in the Amazon rainforest. Um, you know, maybe that's not quite true because there's soils in the Amazon rainforest yeah, as well. But as a descriptor, it's quite useful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But, it, but I think it does kind of open your eyes to to this huge diversity of organisms that that live within the soil and those are responsible for for processing uh, nutrients carbon um, and and other other compounds as well and i think that's you know i suppose in the last 10 15 years that's the real kind of growth area where we've really started started to think about that biology and, and what functions it's performing in the soil and starting to learn that and unpicking it, unpick that, that, that story, which, you know, probably until 15, 15 or so years ago, we, we weren't really grappling with seriously. There was lots of people saying, oh, we've got this many bacteria, this many fungi, but we didn't really know what kind of functions they were performing uh, in, in the soil, or at least some of them. Yeah. And... In that time space of time, I mean, I was, I kind of almost was slightly under, I suppose, underperforming in my career choice in terms of going up and planting trees. And it felt for me like it was like, oh, all these people were making loads of money, they were surveyors or lawyers or whatever. And there's me going out and planting a few trees. I'm so pleased I did that because actually now we've got, we've got that history behind us. We've planted lots of things. And now we're beginning to pull and tease out these connections between the soils, what's going on in the soil and the connections with 
trees. The value of those trees are hedgerows to farming, you know, in terms of soil management, water management, the additional mycorrhizal fungi activity, all these things. And I do feel, 40 years on, it's all coming back together, isn't it? It's like actually these two things, soils and, and, and let's say vegetation or trees, they're now in the same space, aren't they? We're starting to think, okay. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think, there's, again, it's a shift, isn't it? I think, especially, you know, if you look at the history of farming post-war, and, you know, farmers for, for many years were under a lot of pressure to produce as much food as they could by any means necessary. And, to, to, you know, that was the go a government yeah. directive almost upon them. And, and many of them changed from, um, I suppose, less intensive systems to more intensive systems. And that had an impact on the landscape, it had an impact on the vegetation, and it, it's had an impact on the soils as well. Um, and I think there's been a, a realisation, I guess, now, whether that's come from government or whether it's come from the farming community themselves or from from others such as yourselves in the in the you know the the NGO sector, that you know maybe we'd gone too far, and that we need to pull back, and we need to be thinking about this in a in a bit more of a holistic manner. And one of the things that we we often talk about now with soils is to think about all the different functions they can perform. And I think that's the same when we start thinking about woodlands or we start thinking about hedgerows or we start thinking about cover crops. We're not just focusing on one thing. We're thinking about, well, you know, if we manage these soils in this way, well, maybe it's good for sequestering more carbon. Maybe it's... What, what do you maybe, mean by sequestering so carbon? So sequestering... So soils on, on the planet are the biggest terrestrial store of carbon. So this carbon dioxide we're pumping by our yeah. activities into the atmosphere yeah, that's right. can be taken back in by soils. In in certain situations, yes. Yeah. In other situations, they can be an uh, emitter of carbon dioxide as well. So you can imagine if you've got a, you know, I sometimes liken it to a savings account and a current account. So yeah, okay. your savings account is your carbon store in the soil. And you can put a little bit of your current account cash into that store and you can grow your savings or you can take some out. And the conditions that the soils are managed or how they're managed depends on whether you're putting a, a bit away every month or whether you're taking some out every month. Uh, and so shifting the size of that store is very you know, dependent upon the management that you have the land in at the, on the site that you're, you're, you're stood upon. Um, and, and many of our soils will be roughly in balance. You know, they're not, they're not emitting, they're not taking much out of their savings account, they're not putting much in, they've just got a, a stock there. Other soils, you could be shifting quite rapidly to growing your savings, while others, again, you could be in, in, in the reverse situation, you could be losing, losing material. So yeah, so carbon is, is, is you know, it's got a, a lot of traction at the moment for obvious reasons. Mm. We're all looking for ways in which we can reduce carbon emissions and soils, I think, are part of that story. Mm. They're not, there's no silver bullet. No, no. Um, and, and anybody who tells you there's a silver bullet is probably leading you up the garden path. But they are part 
of that story, yeah. but they're also part of the story around flooding. They're part of the story around nutrients and how, you know, we've, there's a lot of coverage of, of water quality in the press at the moment. Mm. Um, phosphorus is a target in, nutrient. Most farms, certainly most arable farms in the UK, many, many dairy farms are out of balance with phosphorus. So more phosphorus is coming into the farm than leaves the farm as meat or, or milk, for example. So, the, you know, soils are part of the, that nutrient transfer story as well to, to waters and water quality. So that, you know, I think they're, they're pivotal to many of these big, big issues that we're, we're facing. So we, we're talking about stacking those benefits, aren't we? It's not just, it's, as you said, the silver bullet kind of that, that kind of diminishes if things down to one or two factors. But actually, we're talking about multiple factors here, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it, so it's how you how you stack. And sometimes those you may be benefiting one thing, yeah, and you yeah. might not be benefiting something else. Yes. And then that then becomes even trickier to. So in, to in, deal in, the, with. in the forestry sector, often we we or I'm I'm really kind of frustrated by some of the rush the rush to carbon sequestration which then leads you into the idea that you plant fast growing trees yeah, yeah. Um, and as many of them as possible um, so we're looking at conifer crops for carbon sequestration completely then ignoring the fact that they're not very good for soil they're very poor in terms of biodiversity um, you then at some point have to clear fell them so where does that leave your carbon store um, all of those kind of attributes so actually by looking at one attribute alone you're very often in the wrong space, aren't you? I, I, I think you're right. I mean, and, and I often get a bit worried with these, these for, you know, some of these forestry schemes as well, because it, you're right. OK, it, for the first 100 years or the first 80 years, wherever, I, I don't know how long you, you'll be able to tell me how long you, you grow a conifer for these, these days. But sure, you're sequestering carbon, or you're, you're, you're storing carbon in that, yeah. that woody biomass. Yeah. But at some point... It gets chopped down, doesn't it? And I yeah. guess then it depends what the fate of that biomass is. If it's turned into paper, I don't know what the, where the where the carbon losses are in doing that, and the energy that's required to use to, to produce the paper. But you know those those issues. But but then, if you rip up the trees and you disturb the soil, do you you're going to lose some of that. So you've been you've been making your deposits in the in the bank account of yep. the carbon bank account, but then you're going to start taking some out quite rapidly when you when you do that harvest operation. And I think that those, those things are are quite interesting. I think in terms of the permanency of those those stores, and you know, I was into a meeting yesterday, and somebody used the word in perpetuity. I can't even say it. In perpetuity. In perpetuity. Yeah. That's the word. And uh, apparently that's 125 years. Yep. It didn't seem very long to no, me. No, it's not, is it? Is it? No. <laughs> so I, I think we both expressed our, our frustration with this, this present approach, this idea that we can change management of something by doing something and automatically start taking carbon up, which kind of gets us off the hook of the real stuff, which is driving to meetings, flying on holiday, um, all of the stuff, that, all the sort of fossil fuel stuff, oh, it's, it's remarkable. Oh, yeah, all we need to do is change our soils management and change our tree planting habits, and off we go. And I think both of us feel as though that's, if we said simplistic, that's one, that's one polite way of saying it. But um, I, I, I guess both of us, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I've, I've, I've seen soils which have been totally destroyed and are devoid of life. Yeah. And devoid of the ability to support life as well and 
and and when I see those environments, it makes me feel quite emotional, and and I want to restore them, or I want to think of ways in which they can be restored. And I think, for me, that's a much better way to be thinking in this this space yeah. than than oh, I must go and sequester x tons of carbon because then I could probably sell it to somebody and make some cash. Um, you know, and I, and I I kind of get a little worried that we 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 focus on one thing or yeah. and, and the one thing is the one thing we can make money out of usually the monetization of it yeah yes. whereas you know there are environments which have been trashed over the years and we could we could debate the reasons in those places why they've been trashed and often they're they're very complicated and often no fault of the people mm. particularly who have living there it's outside pressures often um you know, restoring those environments and restoring a functioning ecosystem or agro ecosystem in those those environments, I think, is is where we should be trying to put our efforts and seeing the the multiple benefits that can come from having those functioning um, ecosystems or or agro ecosystems. It's funny how you have an emotional response to your soils in the same way that I do to ancient woodland yeah. or or farm woodland, like we're looking at here, which which has essentially been trashed by overgrazing with sheep. And all we need to do is fence these areas off and keep the sheep out for a while, and they'll restore themselves. I mean, we, we saw today, didn't we? We, we, we walked, as, we, as we came in, there's, there's an area that I, I remember, I think when you first planted it, Pete, and we, we went to look at it, and it must be nearly 10 years now, yeah, it is, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and we, we, we went up there, and I remember saying to you, you know, what's going to be really interesting is going to be see what happens to the, the vegetation outside of the inside this fence, yeah. because that wasn't really the primary objective. I don't think. Well, the it wasn't at the time, but I think I think the more I've gone on with these things, the more I realise actually, yeah, I, this is again stacking things, isn't it? At yeah. the time when we did that, which is now ten years ago, it was all about tree planting for me. It's our oh, trees, 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 and I. It's taken me. You, you could say I could have got there quicker. Actually, it's taken me a long time to learn this, but it's just vegeta it's vegetation. Yeah. And trees are one type of vegetation. Yeah. And, and, and now when you visit that site, yeah. you, you see, uh, you know, the diversity of vegetation has increased, the, the height of the vegetation. Yeah. You know, if we're thinking hydrological management, then, you know, vegetation to me always says roughness. Yeah. More roughness, slower water flow over yeah. that, that, that surface. And the, and the other thing is that that site has some pretty big gullies yeah. running down through it. Um, now, my memory is of gullies with gully sides devoid of vegetation. Yeah. Now, I, I think that's right. It is right. It, it but, is right. But when you drive past it now, yeah. those gully sides are covered yeah. in vegetation. And, and I know I said to you that as we drove in, I'm going to be dashing off to, to Google Earth and running a kind of time yeah. series yeah. to see how that's changed through time. Because it, it, it looks to me that, you know, if you're starting to restore these big hydrological features as well, which wasn't, again, the, the first objective of it, you, you, wow. you really do then start to make some, some big changes, you know, in terms of both flooding but also water quality if you don't have bare surfaces you don't generate sediment you don't wash sediment down into your streams into your lakes into your rivers that sediment doesn't carry phosphorus we don't have issues in Bussenthwaite Lake with sedimentation and so on perhaps we reduce the 
the flooding into different towns because we don't have sedimentation in streams. Lots of add-ons that, that come with, with some of these so, schemes I mean, uh, that we, we haven't yeah. quantified, no. uh, but, but seem... Well, seem we're actually, we are me. beginning to quantify those because actually the scheme you're talking about is, is clearly visible from the M6. Um, it's 10 years old and we put trees up there, but we've also been monitoring it for bird life. We've been monitoring for insects. We've had one of your colleagues out looking at the water and, and what's happening with water up there as well. Um, and pretty much all those, the direction of travel of all that, all that monitoring suggests that it's slowing down water. It's managing water better. Um, we've got, we, the bird survey was think we, we think we had four birds breeding and nesting up there when we started. We now think there's 13 species. That's amazing, isn't it? So in 10 years, we've brought in willow warbler, reed bunting, things like that are coming in. Um, and so this stacking of multiple benefits is clearly there with this scheme. And we are revegetating those gullies that were losing soils, they're eroding, and now they've got vegetation and insects in them. So it's working at those levels. And, um, and we, can, we know we can do this. I mean, and this, this country, we've done a lot in Cumbria, obviously that's where I've been working, but I mean, your work's now taking you to look at this stuff around the world. And last time we met, you were talking about a really interesting um, site. I think it was in Africa, which was common grazings. It's, it's very anomalous to what we've got here. Common grazings, yeah, that's right. ownership issues, poor people, who, who, own the, who, who don't own the grazing but have the animals. What? Yeah, so, we, so we've been working in, in, in Kenya for the last, I suppose, last seven years or so. And, and to begin with, it's been very much working on ways of, of, of revegetating degraded soils, um, looking at characteristics of degraded soils, what they can support. Um, we've established some, you know, classical scientific experiments with little pots which measure five by five meters. And what we've been very interested in doing recently is, is thinking about how we go to scale. So you, you can demonstrate that you can do quite well on a five by five meter plot, but yeah. any farmer who visits a five by five meter plot is going to just go, yeah, but what about yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah. big area out there? So. Um, that, that's been the challenge, and so we've just started to think about how we, how we do that, and we've got some people out in Kenya at the moment doing some preliminary work. But one of the areas that we've been, been looking at is, is uh, a place called Lodaiga, and it's, it's so working both with local communities and with uh, a, a conservancy, so these are these kind of big ranches that have a mix of livestock but also wildlife as well so with inside the ranch everything is reasonably well mm -hmm. managed mm. Uh, outside the ranch because of historical for historical reasons um, you know probably deals that were done in the mm. 19 the 19th turn of the 20th century with with local people local people have access I think it's to maybe about 10% of the land mm -hmm. um, and that land is mainly communal, so very much like the commons we have up in, in, in Cumbria. In, in yeah. Cumbria. Um, and, and much of that is, has suffered from hideous overgrazing. And, and again, you know, not necessarily, be, you know, if you look, these are, these are people with very limited resources 
and and wealth often tied up in their their cows mm. um, and so it's you know it's a cult grazing is part deeply deeply embedded in their culture maybe a bit like sheep yeah, are yeah, in, yeah, in, you yeah. know for some yeah, farmers in, yeah. in Cumbria and I think you know so so what we've been trying to do is to think of solutions which involve livestock mm. and working uh, with the conservancies to allow us to test things so that we don't necessarily disrupt the local communities lives and mm. the ways they, they want want to live uh, but also working with the local community to maybe try and restore some of the sites which which they perhaps care least about and maybe that's because they're just the most degraded and nobody wants to graze yeah. there anymore yeah. because there's actually nothing nothing growing but but you know one of the the, the things we've we've been looking at is using animals in in so herd, having larger herds they overnight the herds in 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 corrals uh, or, and and those to, to stop the lions eating. Yeah. So if, <laughs> I was going to say, was it a, pre put, a predator issue? Yeah, yeah. You put you put lots of animals in apparently, and you have them all inside a fence. The lions, the love lions it. won't jump in. Oh right, okay, yeah, because they can't see the ground. Okay, right. So, so um, they're really tightly packed then. So these animals. Re uh, yeah, like you know, sardines. Sardines. Yeah. And, uh, but the idea is then you might only have those corrals in one place for one night or yeah, maybe two yeah, nights yeah. and so you're bringing in seed and dung yeah. from around the area where they have been grazed on, on reasonable pasture and then you begin to seed and, and hopefully get some regeneration within those those corrals and you you you, you know so what what our work is hoping to do is to look at you know how often do you need to move them how many animals do you need to mm. have in mm -hmm. how might they be designed to, to, to work so that's from the, the kind of the technical mm. end of it I guess and there's obviously a, a big social story and and you know these the communities are well organized like that like like they are the commoners are here they, yeah. they have a, a, a commoners association yeah, they, yeah. they discuss grazing but then times get hard yeah. and and you know unlike the lakes you might end up with totally bare soils with no fodder whatsoever mm. Mm. and then it gets difficult so i need to f feed my family so what what do i do do i go and graze the little bit of grass yeah, that's yeah. left that's cut left. the trees yep. that are, yeah. are remaining yep. or do i sell my livestock and then i haven't got any livestock and then i'm absolutely and i'm also socially and emotionally i'm de I'm, I'm depleted because because yeah. grazing animals are my life yeah and, yeah. and, and yeah. those are really yeah. Yeah. really difficult yeah. difficult areas to work in and and I think you know and, it, and it's and it, so a lot of it is around trying to think how you empower the community to s solve some of these mm. these issues so I mean it, I love the parallels there between the commons in Cumbria we've been working on um, but also the distinctively different things as well I, I mean, I suppose, presumably where you are, uh, talking in Kenya there, people are, have a history of also taking the dung away to burn at home. Yeah, no, I I, I, I mean, I haven't spoken to them about fire, using it for yeah. fuel, but I would imagine they do. I mean, certainly dung and dung and soil is used for, for a lot of house... Construction. Construction. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so... So there's other demands on, yeah, that on materials as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and one of the one of the things that 
that, that's been discussed, and it's, it's not me that's driving this, this is coming from people in, in Kenya, is around bringing animals together so that people's animals are in bigger herds, uh, together with maybe some of the conservancy herds as mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. and then that allows these herds to be run much in a, in a much closer way to how they were it would have been emulating the the, the world the wildebeest or yeah okay yeah you know yeah. where they would have followed the good grazing yeah so if, if it's green in that valley we'll go graze over there if it's if it's brown over here then we'll avoid that area until it greens up and so i you know that the, the areas the areas are large i mean they're mm. you know, really mm. big areas but and so you do get these differences in 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 fodder quality mm. in climate um, between these these different areas and so i think one of the ideas locally is around having these more these larger herds which would have been you know similar to as you say wildlife but also to the original nomadic herding which would have which would have occurred in those areas and can't occur now because fences were, were yeah. put up everywhere and in a sense we're talking about uh, you're managing landscapes here with animals and i i've come round despite being a vegetarian, I've come round to the idea that actually anim animals are a key part of this landscape. I have a problem with numbers, and I also have a problem with the fact we, we graze only one type of animal very often, but animals are a key part of this landscape. Um, but lots more people are talking about mob grazing. The idea that you bring loads of animals into one space and they're there for a short time, and then you move them on. And you know, we've, we're working with a lot of people who are now doing this sort of regenerative grazing. And it sounds very similar to. Yeah, I think I think it's a similar kind of idea yeah. here. Yeah. Um, the, the the idea that that you're 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 putting a, a large number of animals in a small space for a short period of time, yeah. and, and then resting it. And then resting it. So the pea and the poo is then it's laid on the plants. The plants can then take that up. They they yeah. can they can and grow seed and seed. Yeah. And they're allowed to grow. They're allowed to grow tall and therefore deeper rooting and more contact with nutrients in the soil, all that kind of stuff. It sounds virtuous, doesn't it? It does sound wonderful if it, if it works. I yeah. mean, obviously, you, the, the difficulty is, of course, you, the climate, in, particularly in, in these kind of semi-arid regions, is very variable. Yeah. And so, you know, if you get a drought thrown in, then it could, you know, scupper everything or at least knock things back. And I think... You know, you know. Ho hopefully, you have a period where you're getting, you know, rainfalls in the right mm. places mm. and 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 things regenerate and stabilise before you get your drought. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's two or three things in here, isn't it? I mean, there's one. I'll come back to about resilience in a minute. But actually, the the the, the, the obvious thing that strikes me is the transition between one system and another. And you spent a lot of time talking to people who are in that transition. On their own farms or on their, their own land, um, you mentioned intensive agriculture potentially being a real issue in terms of soil quality earlier. If people are moving from an intensive system to a much less intensive or a lower input system, that transition can be quite painful. Um, there's this drop off in terms of productivity when you stop putting fertilizer on, but before you've bought up your soil health. So that transition, how do you explain that to people? It's going to be really bad for two or three years, but after that, it's going to be great. And have they got the capacity to buy into that? It's an interesting area, isn't it? And I, I, to be honest, Peter, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what 
what exactly is 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 happening. So I think I think if you're if you if you're a farmer who's always been looking at yield, and I'm thinking here in a in an arable context, yeah. um, then I think it can be problematic when you when you start to move to something which is perhaps less intensive and is perhaps geared more to getting more organic matter into the soil. So restorative agriculture, if you if you mm. want to use that that term, um, I think. Some of the farmers I've I've spoken to, you know, it, it's it seems to be more a realization around margins. So instead of thinking about I'm going to produce eleven tons of wheat per hectare, they're thinking, well, actually, I can make a, an income which is perhaps the same or greater than I was making getting that eleven tons of wheat per hectare by doing eight or nine, but just but doing eight yeah. or nine, but 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 reducing my fertilizer inputs, reducing maybe some of my chemical usage as, as mm. well, mm. and perhaps looking for other sources of, of organic matter, perhaps introducing legumes, perhaps introducing cover crops into rotations, thinking a bit more carefully about what I do use in my rotation. And I think those kinds of shifts, I think don't have to necessarily involve falling off a cliff face. Is, is, is that... But, but, you know, those are anecdotal conversations mm. that, that, that I've had with people. Um, and and it, it may be that for others, it, it does involve... You know, I, I can imagine if you're on a, a light, sandy soil which doesn't retain nutrients particularly well and you've been using a lot of inorganic yeah. nutrients to, to, you know, basically do soil hydroponics, if you like, you know, feeding the crop... Um, to, to get your yields if you stop adding those nutrients and that's light sandy soil can't retain many of them is, mm. isn't going to have a stock that it can you know keep keep feeding the crop with mm. then in those situations you could imagine that yes if you stop and you're trying to then make the move to a more kind of uh, I suppose restorative agricultural system you may well need a few years before you build up your organic matter reserves mm. and your reserves of organic nitrogen and organic pea mm. and, mm. and other things which the crop is going to require. Well, you know, in this in this podcast series, we're going to go and meet quite a few farmers who've changed or are changing. So I think we can ask that question well, of I them think and, it'd be really interesting and, and see where they get to. Out yeah, yeah, their, yeah. Their answers. Um, so the other thing was was pointing towards resilience, and I mean, yeah, we're both Suffolk lads. We're both living up now in the north, um, where it's plenty of rain like it is today. Um, but we know, yeah, I mean, Suffolk last summer was a lot of it was burnt out there was just we had a massive drought it really impacted on a lot of farms um, and part of that is, is just the moisture content of soils is low and their resilience is poor so I mean you know, how much of your work is dedicated to try and find ways of 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 actually creating resilience in soils yeah well I, I think there's, there's there's a few things to think about there so I mean, we've done some work recently where we've looked at how... So this is in arable systems, again, how, how tillage moves soils around landscapes. And uh, you can imagine the general direction of travel is down the hill. So mm -hmm. if you plough a soil, you, you not only turn it, but you move some of the soil down the hill. And that leaves, leads to thinning of soils on, 
on the sort of the, as you come off the top of the slope and you're heading down down the slope, those areas get thin. The areas at the bottom get thicker. Right. And I think you know when you start to think about water, yeah. soil depth is actually one of the key elements that you've 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 got in your control right. as a as a, a as a farmer. And if you've been ploughing for many years on a on a slope and you go out and you dig a hole, I can guarantee you you will find a thinner soil on the on the mm. as you come off the, the top of the slope than you will at the bottom of the slope. Right. And and most of that, that movement is due to tillage. Yep. Some of it is due to water erosion in where you have water erosion. Some sort some places you won't have water erosion. But almost all arable soils have been tilled. Many grassland soils are tilled once every five three, years, three, yeah, four, yeah, five yeah, years yeah. To, 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 for a reseed. Yep. So they're tilled as well, not as often, and yeah. so the issue isn't perhaps as, as, as stark. And many grassland soils are in drier, oh, sorry, in wetter parts yeah. of the, the country than arable soil. So that's number one, is that you have tillage erosion, we, we sometimes refer to it, and water erosion, mm -hmm. which are, are bad for your soil depth. Yep. That's water storage that you've lost. The other one is, is again getting more organic matter and having better soil structure so that you can store more of the water that uh, that falls on the soil surface so it infiltrates into the soil and, and is, is stored there for, for use by, by crops. And if you can then rebuild that structure and the, the organic compounds in the soil, is that going to hold more water? Yeah, it will. It will hold more water. I, th I think it. W you know, we could oversell it yeah. and say, yeah, it's the solution. It's it's not the full solution. Yeah. Um, you know, th if you think about soil depth versus having an extra two or three percent organic matter, soil depth is going to win out every time. Mm -hmm. But having more organic matter and having better soil structure is certainly going to help get water and store water in the surface of, of the soil for use use by plants and it's you know it comes back to this stacking thing that we talked about mm. earlier yeah. multiple benefits yeah. because it's also going to bring uh, more bio soil biology in there you're going to cycle more nutrients you're going to perhaps unlock organic nitrogen and organic phosphorus which which your plants can can access as well so there's you know, a host of other benefits from adding organic matter, as well as as well as additional water storage. But important not to say, you know, if I told you that, you know, increasing your organic matter is going to by one or two percent, it's going to solve your problem in a in a drought in a year like we had last year. Probably not, I'm afraid. And what I love about scientists is they're often they often depress me because they. <laughs> It's just like, well, there's a lot of air sucked through teeth. In, oh, I don't. I am not sure we can necessarily say that. I, I really like my black and whites. I, yeah. I, I do like my answers. <laughs> um, but it is, yeah. This, this is direction of travel stuff. Is it? We're all learn, We're learning this stuff. And as we said earlier, you know, the last ten or fifteen years, we've accelerated this learning quite massively, haven't we? About and, the and, interplay. And I think actually practitioners are, are almost ahead of the scientists. And yeah. the scientists are playing a bit of. Catch, catch up, up in some ways because I think there's 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 you know there's there's been a movement um, and 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 a realization for some farmers that they don't want to continue the way they they 
been farming previously. Well, frankly, they can't afford to. And they exactly the economic pressures yeah. are are just, you know, yeah. uh, they, the ch some change has to happen. And now, whether that's you open, convert your barns to a to a B and B mm. or some holiday accommodation, or or you or you or you think, well, I'm actually going to have less less stock and I'm going to mm. make more margin on having rare breed meat rather than, than, uh, than, than, than you know, kind of standard, standard beef. I think all those things are driving change and, and you know, p people are innovative. They know their land. They mm. know their, they mm. know their, their well, economic the, system. The, yeah. The, the joy of where I've been is <clears throat> I've been on a journey and with, with actually quite a few of the farmers I've worked with and I've seen them thinking and changing and observing and then that we've been invited back to do things like hedgerow planting or tree planting. Uh, we've, we've put crops of willow in because that's what the cattle want to eat and it's uh, um, anthelminthic. Uh, you know, they, they, they've got some properties there in terms of worming. Um, dry matter, proteins, all that kind of stuff. Shade, shelter, certainly in the summers we've had, shade and shelter have become much, much more important things up the agenda. The Pont Bren study in Wales showed you how seasonality in grasses was improved. You put your hedgerows or your windbreaks in with trees and outside of those areas, the grass grows, has a longer season because it's more sheltered and probably water management's better in those areas. So yeah, I think a lot of those simple practitioners have just been ticking away at this stuff and working it out but maybe not knowing the soil science but nevertheless observing the benefits yeah. of what they've done and now you guys are picking up and saying well ah oh, well the reason that's happened is this yeah i think that's right and 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 i think it's it, it w i think we've been trying to understand this perhaps from a theoretical uh, standpoint but we haven't got close enough to some of these innovative practitioners, yeah. and and I think that's that's something I think which we have we collectively collectively I think we could we could yeah. do better at yes. And but but there is this question which I, I hear a lot is how how do we how do we as uh, if you say practitioners on our side or, or or scientists or whatever how do we engage with the farming community? Because it's not one, it's not a, it's not a homogenous bunch of people, it's, it's, it's individuals. Um, and how do we do that over a long enough period of time yeah. to actually see and observe those things for ourselves? Because actually these things don't happen overnight. You know, you can change how a field is managed and it's gonna take 10, 15 years possibly to get rid of that phosphate spike that was there because of all the nutrients going on. You, I, I, I'm delighted going out with Paul, uh, yeah, Paul Renison, and, and you know when I first met him, he said, "Oh, we, we, you know, we, Pete, we, we're trying to boost our worm count here. We, we've got eight worms per spade, and I'm trying to get up. I think he was trying to get to 17 or something like that. Um, and, if, and then you're yeah, quite a few years on, and we go out with a bunch of farmers and we dig some holes, and lo and behold, we find 22 worms. You know, <laughs> so it's working." And it's a very simple measure. Earthworm counting is a really simple measure of whether your field's good, bad, or indifferent. We did the same thing with Olwyn in, in, in Yorkshire on an arable field that had been tenanted from the farm for years and years and years, really pushed hard. We hardly found a worm in it. Mm. You know, so some interesting things, but it, it, it took Paul a long time to get oh, those, those worm numbers up. Well, I think it's like any habitat, isn't it, Peter? You know, Hugh... You know, we were talking earlier about birds coming into this this restored habitat in the mountain areas of the 
English Lake District, you know, after 10 years of, of restoration. Yeah. You know, if, if you build the habitat, the organisms will come. They may take some time to find it, but they will find it. And, and you will get more, more worms, you will get more calembrula, you will get more of all these insects, bacteria, fungi. Um, if, if, there's, if there's a better habitat and perhaps a, you know, a, a more structured habitat that they can, they can live in, then they'll come. They're going to come. Yeah. They're going to come. And then they will start having positive feedbacks. Provided we've not pushed them to extinction in the meantime. And, and that, that, that's a worry, I think, for a lot of things. Is we know how to restore habitats, actually. We've, we've, we've done loads of it. But we haven't done enough to prevent things like curlew becoming threatened, yeah. other birds becoming threatened. So we need to get on with this stuff really quickly. Mm. But yeah, I think, I think you're right. Interesting, I was, I was reading a book by Eric Collier. Um, is it three going to the wilderness or something? Um, it was lent to me by a friend who said, you're going to love this book, read it, you're going to love it. It was written, Eric's time was in the 20s, 30s and 40s, 1920s, 30s and 40s in America. English lad went out, married an American, had a, had a son, they went into the wilderness and he, he shot and, and, and skinned and sold skins of, of wild animals for a living. Um, and he went into a landscape which had been shot and mauled about by, by previously by, 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 unfortunately, sort of colonialists and others. But they'd shot out all the beaver. And he went back, and firstly himself with, a, with, him, with an Indian um, friend he was working with, to recreate beaver dams, to restore the landscape so the wildlife would come back so he could shoot it. Um, and then later on he got beavers and, and, and it's basically, the, and he writes in that book, build the habitat and the animals will come. Yeah. This, is, this was written in the 1950s. You know, we've known this for an awful long time. He was writing about it then. You know, and he was, he was shooting more things because the wildlife came back. And you could argue, okay, <laughs> maybe he's already shooting things, but, but he wanted the wildlife there so that he could live. Mm. Um, and he always left more for the next year. So you know, his thing was build the, build the habitat and it'll come. And we're now trying to rediscover this 60, 70 years on. I mean, we're pretty slow learners, aren't we? Well, I think, we, I think we've been doing it, haven't we? We've just been patchy, mm. I think. And I think we've, you know, if I think of, you know, coming back to agriculture and, and soil, you know, when I was taught soil science, nobody mentioned this. Yeah. You know, there, we, we did do some soil biology, but it was, it was very much, um, here's nitrogen fixation, Here's rhizobia, here's mycorrhiza. These things are important for crop production. Right. And, and I think what we lost sight of was, was that these are important, important for this multifunctioning soil that is part of the environment and, and deserves its place next to air, water yep. and vegetation yep. Yep. as something that we should care about. Yeah, because if we don't care about it, you know that there's you know that there's one truth out there that if we don't have any soil, we will not have any food, and if we don't have any food, there won't be any of us. We won't survive on on growing fungi in sheds. That's not going to work. <laughs> um, you know, we do need we, we we do need our soils, and we need to produce food from them. But we need to do that in a way that is sustainable and ensures that they're still yeah. there not in 125 years or even 1,250 years, but probably 
hundreds of thousands of years. Some of the soils on the planet are hundreds of thousands or millions of years old. Yeah. And so we need the soils that we're going to rely on in future generations to also, you know, still be there and still functioning. So what's your view of the soil health across the UK at the moment? Um, I, th I think if you look at in, in the UK, I think we have many soils which are in good condition, but we have soils which have, have either been... Um, tilled to the point of of destruction in in some parts particularly of the south and, mm. and east um which i you know kind of fear for a bit uh, and then i worry about some of the soils in the uplands perhaps a little less than i did when i first moved up here 20 yeah. years ago yeah. i think i i sense some recovery in the uplands of of some of the soils there was a lot of erosion in the uplands when when here 20 years ago there's still some, yep. but I, I detect that it's not, and, and, and overgrazing as well, I think was quite common. But I, I detect just, you know, anecdotally, I haven't studied this, but from walking in the fells, I see less now than I think I did 20 years ago in terms but of- But probably where you and I are walking for choice yeah. is almost certainly in a, in a scheme. It's a, a natural England scheme. Possibly, yeah. Um, a lot of those are predicated on changing grazing patterns, yeah. removing sheep, perhaps in the winter, yeah. when they're most at risk. Yeah. So I suspect we've self-selected some sites where uh, we want to be, and those are the ones, are the ones maybe, in the schemes. Maybe, well, um, maybe well. It would be, it, you know, we, we have very little data on this, yeah. Peter. I mean, there was a survey, I think, in about 1996 yeah. of upland erosion, yeah. never been repeated. Right. So things got better, worse. We, we haven't got a clue. We, we kind of live in this vacuum of soil data at the moment. We, we don't, you know, you say how, it, it, you know, these are my anecdotal opinions based mm. on where the places I visited rather yeah. than necessarily any systematic yeah. survey yeah. because we don't survey soils systematically. We haven't done for, for the best part of 20 something years. Um, and so, you know, unlike any other part of our environment, we seem to think well, that, you, you, that, that they, uh, that, you know... You say, you say like any... You, but actually, you, our monitoring and review of the landscape at any point is poor. You know, and I, I, we, yeah, we're, doing, we're doing monitoring on sites that realistically are not our projects. I mean, we're involved in them, yeah. but we're doing the monitoring because I think, I think we need to monitor them. But we're not... There's no, there's no structure around in government or, or other organisations. And in fact, because of, because of all sorts of things, they've got less staff than they used to have. Those staff are stretched. Yeah. They don't have the time to go and monitor. So it becomes anecdotal or ad hoc. Yeah. And I'm part of that ad hoc. We're yeah. going and doing it because we think, well, actually, we're spending a lot of money on this and time. We want to know whether this is the right thing to do or not. I genuinely want to know if I wake up and go and do some work that I'm doing the right thing. I mean, the... the, the the government, in, in their recent update to the 25-year plan, yeah. does mention soil health monitoring. There's obviously no detail right. because, you know, so we wait with bated breath to see what that means and, and how many samples. But certainly in their environmental indicators that they released a few years ago, I think there's only one that is slightly applicable yeah. to soils. So it's... it's and, and I think there's 20 for the whole environment. 
so that's right. you know that that's the detail we're, we're going to get i mean you know i can remember in the 90s where we used to have regular publications of the mm. state of the environment mm. and and monitored data would be part of that and yeah we it, it's a worldwide thing we're all withdrawing from from doing monitoring because we think it's expensive yep um and we don't need to know apparently yeah we don't need to know how you know, it's in, in how bad things have got, or how good things have got. Where you know, it's, we want we want to be able to. You know, I think we want to be able to learn from best practice. But we need to know where that is, mm. and I think that's, you know, where things where are things changing for the better? What and and what? How how can we learn from that, and how can we encourage others to adopt those those best practices? So, anyone listening to this with deep pockets. <laughs> could go out and start to help us to monitor and review things. Um, we, but we, but we, it's not sexy, is it? It's not <laughs> sexy, Peter. Nobody wants to do that. If if you offer, if you, somebody comes to you and says, "Look, Pete, I've got I've got five million burning a, a hole in my pocket. Can, you know what I'd like to do is go and plant a forest, please, yeah. because that's actually quite sexy, isn't it? And that would be something I could put my name on, and uh, it could be the." Well, I could even plant the trees in the shape of my name, actually. If we have enough money, we could do that, yeah, couldn't we? That much, yeah, that much. But yeah the, whole, yeah, the whole idea of monitoring things. And, and you know, I've struggled as well to get money set aside for, the, for monitoring. Um, <clears throat> but, I, but what's delightful is actually the monitoring we have done is now really showing us direction of travel. Yeah. So when you do it... It's great, isn't it? It's great. Yeah, it's amazing. Then, then now you know yeah. what to do because you know which bits worked and which bits didn't. Yeah. So I had, a, I had a, an interview with a guy, a wonderful guy called Chris Hodgson, who's a sheep farmer in the Central Lakes um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and he said, Pete, you made loads of mistakes when you did our scheme for us. Well, he's, or something to this, work, this effect. Loads of mistakes, but you've learned, haven't you? <laughs> I was thinking, well, yes, we have learned. We have to learn. You have to we, learn. We, we have, have to learn. learn. And, and the only way we learn is by making mistakes. You know, yeah. this, is, oh, this is this great thing, isn't it, in, in science, that, you know, if, if you... If you you know, have a hypothesis, something, some idea that you're going to test. If if you run the test and it's true, you learn nothing. Yeah, yeah. If you refute the hypothesis and throw it out, then you've learned something. Yeah. You've learned that doesn't work, so I'm going to have to do something <laughs> different. Um, so just to wrap up, right, this is this been a, this been a, a lovely rant between a scientist and a, and a tree person about about where we're at. Um, you know, I, I've. I'm, I'm hopeful for the future, but not confident. But the learning we've done, and we're in our late 50s, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to translate to other people what we've learned. I mean, not in a big-headed way, but, you know, hopefully give them a stepping, a stepping stone to their future. Where, where do you think the, 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 the things lie for your students? Because you're, you're still teaching. Where are those guys going to be in a few years' time? Are they bothered about the climate? Are they going to pick up from where you are and learn more and push that soils thing, or you, where are they heading? What's what's your what's your future prediction on that lot? I think they are. I think mean, most of our students, are, you know, are really concerned about a wide range of environmental issues. It's it's you know these things are on their agenda. You know, one of you know if I think of my career, you know, okay, I've done some really interesting research, but I think you know hopefully one of the things. Well, certainly one of the things I look back on now, and I, I think, you know, that, that's part of a legacy, if you like, is the young people that I've mm. engaged and talked to about soils and water and all these other things uh, that, that, that I've got involved in. 
and you know and you hope that just a little bit of that rubs off on them and a little bit of knowledge that sometime in the future in a position they'll they'll be able to make a little bit of difference that has a positive impact on the environment so do you think frank williams would be proud of us I think he'd be very interested, Peter. I think I, I he think, probably, oh. would, probably would be... I, I'd like to think he'd be proud, but I think he'd, I certainly think he'd be really interested in our careers, and I think he would really hopefully enjoy sitting down and, and having, having, yeah. a, uh, having a pint and, uh, and, I, and discussing I, I think some of the things we've been up to. If we could go back and get some of your dad's homebrew and go back and have a chat with Frank and talk about geography and landscapes and soils and trees, I think he'd... I think he'd be chuffed to bits, actually. So, yeah. John, thanks very much indeed for spending some time in the lovely wet hills of T-Bay this afternoon. Um, I think we should uh, go and warm up and stomp back to the car. Sounds like a good idea, Peter. OK, thank you very much, John. As you could probably tell from this interview, John and I go back an awful long way. It was lovely to see him out and about. We had a great walk. And I don't know if you've got old friends, but isn't it amazing to think you've had that that life history with them, uh, even if you don't see them very often, how you, you so, you've shared so many things over the years. Spending time with them is just heartwarming. It's enlivening. Um, those old friends are the best friends, aren't they? Um, I really enjoyed seeing John, and it's great that we're sharing so much passion about the environment and soils and things like that. And uh, no, I loved seeing John again, and it was great to record it. Next time, we're off to see Olwyn in Yorkshire on a Forest of Flowers project. Forest of Flowers is an innovative approach to creating woodland through ploughing and using wildflowers. For me, it's an exceptional project, and I've loved being involved with Forest of Flowers, so look in. Let's see if we can get podcast number four in this series up and away. You've been listening to the Tree Amble podcast, written and produced by myself, Pete Leeson. My special thanks go to Pete Ord for his awesome production and mixing skills. And actually, Pete and Pete, both of us, we wrote the music. So thanks very much to Pete for his input there. The recording was on location with mixing and production at the studio at Sunbeams, part of the Annie Mawson Sunbeams Music Trust. Thanks also to all those lovely people who were interviewed, Simon Wakefield for the artwork, and my special thanks go to those who gave me the confidence and support to make this happen. Angela, Anne, Catherine, Tim, Tim, Kevin, Emma, Nick and Paul, thank you. <laughs>